You can open up your Bibles to the letter to the Romans. It is the first letter that you find in the New Testament, so it's right after, right after the the Acts, and then you have Romans. We've covered a lot. We've covered uh, most of Paul's letters. Uh, we have not covered uh, Timothy and Titus, at least I have not, but we've covered most of Paul's epistles, and, and Romans is still waiting for us, and so we're going to, to talk about the message of Romans today. Uh, very exciting for me. Uh, I've been reading Romans for three months, and I'm eager to share with you a little bit. Let me emphasize that, a little bit of what I have learned. Um, let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for blessing us with this time together. I'm going to learn from your word, and I pray that you would use this message to uh, whet the appetite of uh, these students, even causing them to desire to know the message of Romans even more and to dig it into it for themselves. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, verse 1 says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are Loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but uh, thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You guys were worried there for a second. You're like, oh boy. When he meant message of Romans, he he was going to actually read all of Romans. But no. Just the first 17 verses. That's very significant to understanding uh, where this letter is going, why this letter is written, and, and what the message of this letter is, even in those first 17 verses. I want to share with you just um, uh, a few thoughts here for why you should, why you should want to learn the message of Romans. Now, once again, remember, uh, Romans has a distinct message that it is seeking to communicate. And you, even as a young believer, 
want to know what that message is. You want to understand what that message is. Trust me, you want to know. I'm going to give you eight reasons why you want to know the message of Romans. Um, Eight incentives to read the letter to the Romans. Eight motivations to grasp the depths of this message. Uh, Eight purposes for why you should get up in the morning and read Romans yourself. Right? Eight arguments for why the letter to the Romans really, truly matters and is deeply significant to your life and to your faith and to your godliness and to your growth. Now, because I know me, and because I don't want you to fear, I cannot cover all eight reasons for why you should learn the message of Romans today. So just so you know, right out of the gates, it's gonna, we're going to be right at about 10, 20, and I'm going to be on reason number three. So don't worry, I'm not going to try to cram five reasons into 10 minutes. We're going to do three reasons today, and then we're going to do five <laughs> next week. We'll see how that goes. Uh, the first three reasons take a while to get through, so you'll understand real quickly why we can only do three. We're going to do three reasons, and once again, I want to give you kind of just a little bit of an incentive, an encouragement. If you're not reading anything right now, if you're kind of wandering around in your personal devotions, hey, you should pick up the letter to the Romans and read this, study this, know this message. I'm going to try to give you reasons, encouragements, motivations to do that. And also, if you're, if you're doing something else, that's great, that's fine. If you're reading somewhere else in the Bible, yeah, I want you to continue to do that. But I also want to kind of um, cause you to sneak into the letter of Romans even tomorrow and say, what is the big deal about? I want to learn this message for myself. So that's my goal. That's my motivation here. I want to motivate you to want to read the Bible. Every time I talk to you about a book of the Bible, I want to motivate you and encourage you to understand it for yourself. So let's look at it now together. If you know the message of Romans, you can Fill in the blanks. That's what we're going to do. If you know the message of Romans, you can do the following things. And you guys are just like, I can see your pens. Like, what, what, what is number one, though? Well, he keeps doing these dumb fill-in-the-blanks things. Uh, number one, if you know the message of Romans, you can ascend Paul's theological mountaintop. If, if you know the message of Romans... You can go to the top of the high mountain um, that is Romans. This is, this, is, this is the mountain of Paul. Um, and I don't just say that. Um, I, I love all of Paul's writings. I, I am very, uh, I'm very much in love with Philippians and Ephesians. All of those are great. But it seems as though Romans is very significant in the, the writings of Paul. Here's what J.I. Packer says in Knowing God. He says this about the letter to the Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans is the high peak of Scripture, however you look at it. All roads in the Bible lead to Romans. And all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what may happen. End of message, right? That's a motivation in and of itself. There is no telling what could happen in your life and because of your life when the message of Romans gets into your heart and into your mind. That's so exciting to me. That makes me want to read and know the message of Romans. In that, in that um, quote there by Packer, he, he'll go on in that chapter to, to argue that you know Romans is the mountain peak. 
the mountain of Scripture, the, the high point of Scripture. All of Scripture, like uh, roads in the, the ancient world, all roads went to Rome. All roads in Scripture go to Romans in the same way. And, and Packer will go on to say, not only do we have the, the mountain of Scripture here in Romans, but we have the peak of the peak. The peak of the peak is Romans 8 itself. The, the Romans 8 is the high point in Romans itself, and that means Romans 8 is the high point in Scripture itself. According to Packer, you don't take my word for it, listen to him. Um, reasons, why, reasons why Romans is the height, well, it is number one. I mean, you can tell yourself it's, it's the biggest letter in the New Testament. And the letters in the New Testament are very significant to us. They're, they're unpacking of the work of Christ and the significance for us. But, but, but here in Romans, we have the largest, the longest letter in the New Testament. And, and the people who kind of organize the, the English order, you could say the English order of our books of the Bible, put Romans first in the letters for various reasons. Number one, because it's the, the, the largest, but also it's most significant. You, I could give you quote after quote after quote uh, from um, men in church history that hold the letter to the Romans, very dear to their heart. It, was, it, was, it is seen as the high point of Paul's theology by all. It's, it's long, but it also kind of has, has a bit of Paul's you know, full and, and largest treatment of the truths that he's always been preaching. Now, let me be very clear about this. Romans is not Paul finally getting the gospel right. It's not like, hey, in Galatians, in Philippians, Paul was kind of like trying to figure out what he believed. But by the time he got to Romans, ah, now I know what I'm believing. It's actually very consistent. If you follow my, my order of when and, and how Paul wrote the New Testament, uh, you believe that Paul actually wrote Galatians first. And Galatians is one of the most striking, striking uh, letters concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and you can compare Romans and Galatians. Sometimes people say Galatians is Paul's shorter Romans. Right, And they're very the same. Paul isn't changing his theology here, but this is his longest treatment. This is his most prolonged and detailed treatment of the gospel that he preaches. Matter of fact, this is is a a letter that comes in a a very interesting moment in Paul's life. If you remember from when we went through Acts together, remember Paul had a lot of correspondence, a lot of troubling correspondence with the church church. In Corinth, remember, they were constantly misunderstanding things. They were constantly immature, and he was constantly writing them letters. Right, two of them are missing. We only have two of his letters to the Corinthians ourselves. Um, only two inspired letters, and and Paul actually had to leave Ephesus for various reasons. One, there was kind of a riot in Acts nineteen, but then also he he, he left Ephesus and went to Corinth in the beginning of Acts twenty to spend time there in Greece. It says in Acts. But we know really what the reason was, and, and Paul tells us what the reason was in 2 Corinthians, right? He is going there because he cares about the Corinthians, and they have just destroyed him. They have tried, uh, there's been false teachers in the Corinthian church that have tried to destroy the reputation of Paul, but Paul has continued and been persistent in loving this church. And, and he has truly shown that his adequacy is in God in all things. And the letter to the Romans is really written there at the beginning of Acts 20. You could, you could write in kind of the margins of your Bible there when he's in, when he's in Greece. That's probably Corinth for, for three months that winter getting ready to take a, a present to Jerusalem 
with all of the gifts of the, the, the Macedonian and the, the Corinthian churches. He's, 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 he's there in Corinth, and he is ready to take a gift to the Jerusalem church. And during that time in Corinth, he writes this letter to Romans. And it will be very obvious in a few minutes why he's doing this. But all to say, just, just look at the historical place, the context in which Paul writes this. He has gone through a massive pastoral struggle, and he has seen God faithful through it. His, 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 the truth that he holds has brought him through all of this. He has known the adequacy of God, not because of something he has in and of himself, but because of the truth that he holds in Christ Jesus. This is a mountaintop. This is a mountaintop because Paul has lived it. He has proved that God is trustworthy. And that's what Romans partially is about, showing the trustworthiness of God. It's probably written around AD 56. Um, there's a note of triumph about it, as I've said. If you turn over to Romans uh, 15, in fact, you see Paul's kind of aim in why he's writing here. 15, um, 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, that is in Macedonia and Greece, And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia, that's that's Greece and Corinth, have been pleased to make some uh, contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So you see that, right? He's, He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem, but... He's also thinking ahead, right? I'm, I'm kind of, I've finished all that I can do here in these regions, and I'm eager to go to Spain. And in case any of you are wondering, that's actually Spain. That's actually way in the west, past Rome, you know, down, down past France and into Spain. That's where Paul is planning to go, the, the far reaches of the world and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is writing this letter to kind of set up the Romans for his visit. It's really exciting to just kind of see how Acts kind of fits into all of this. So this is, this is Paul's kind of mountaintop, right? That's what we're seeing here. This is, this is Paul after hard ministry declaring the gospel that he has been preaching again and again and, and telling it to the Romans who have yet to meet him, but uh, he is eager for them to meet him and themselves. Uh, but you should be clear here, this is not, Romans is sometimes thought of as kind of like a systematic theology. You know, I've got a couple systematic theologies on my shelf. They tell you everything you want to know about theology, right? I want to know about sin. I want to know about the church. I want to know about God. I want to know about end times events. Uh, sometimes people say, that's what Romans is. Romans is just Paul saying, hey, here's my systematic theology. I'm just going to give you my theology of everything that I believe. But actually, if you think about it, Romans isn't that. Right? Did you ever think about it? Romans does not have any truth about Christ in it. Like, I mean, like, I should say that again. Uh, Romans does not have um, the extent of descriptions of who Christ is in his deity like Colossians does or Hebrews does or Philippians does, right? Uh, Romans does not have detailed treatment on end times events. Romans does not have detailed treatment on how the church operates, who leads the church. Romans actually is missing a lot of theology that we see in, in other places. Uh, Romans is actually not a, like a, just a, just here's some truth for you guys. Romans, I would say to you, is a situational letter. Do you know what that is? So there's a situation. 
going on in the Romans, uh, the Roman church. And Paul is writing to talk about that situation. That's a situational letter. All the letters of the New Testament are situational letters. Matter of fact, there's a situation going on in Paul that motivates him to write to their situation. But notice, this is just the, the, the beauty of the truth of Scripture. There are specific situations that are being addressed through this truth. But they're being addressed through timeless truth. And that's why this letter is so rich to us, right? God's timeless truth comes to our specific situation and changes us from within and transforms us to handle those situations in a God-glorifying way. This is a situation, uh, a situational letter, you could say. Uh, Paul writes to the church he's never met before, but Paul writes to show them the gospel that he preaches is the same gospel that they believe, and Paul also writes to strengthen them so that they can defend it and support him in it. That's why Paul writes, writes the letter to the Romans. But they need uh, the gospel also for a specific reason. And, and I'll get into this next week, but just, just so I just touch on this real quick. What is the exact purpose that Paul is writing to Romans for? He is not just writing to them to, to show them his gospel, although that's very central to his concerns. There is actually a specific situational purpose that the Apostle Paul has in writing to the Roman church. And this may surprise you. Because well, it surprises me. Romans, Romans always seems like this massive, theological, mountaintop of a letter. How could it be involved in the nitty-gritty life of a church and their problems? But it is. It's, it's, all, it's all centered on the Roman church and their problem. They're a very mature church, but they do have a problem as well. Here, I'm going to read you the purpose as I've written it out in the most vague terms possible so as not to spoil my fun. Um, And let me just insist and remind you that you need this too. You need this message too. You need this purpose in your life as well. Here it is. Ready? This is Romans' purpose. Romans is written to bring gospel unity between Christians. Romans is written to bring gospel unity between Jew and Gentile believers, Christians in Rome. Under gospel truth. In the support of gospel ministry. Now, once again, I I said intentionally vague terms. And I hope to uh, clarify it a little bit for you, but just, just, just think about that. There is a problem in the Roman church of complete 100% unity. There's some disagreements among the believers in the Roman church. And Paul writes to bring gospel unity under gospel truth in support of gospel ministry. Whose gospel ministry? His, to Spain. And he wants them to be unified under truth so that they may support his ministry together. Uh, Your joy in gospel ministry, however you are connected to it, comes as you are united under gospel truth. Uh, Real quick, I'm going to give you a real quick uh, beginner's summary guide to the message of Romans. So, this is intentionally vague also because I don't want to spoil my fun again. Uh, So, don't blink, you'll miss it. Here it is, the letter to the Romans in one page. Here we go, ready? Ready? Here we go. Uh, Paul begins with an intro and a greeting and a thesis. You know what a thesis is? It's an argument that he's going to prove. That is the first 17 verses of the letter to the Romans. Good luck, Joel. Good luck, Joel. Um, Number two, then Paul sets up the big problem. In the first three chapters, Paul sets up a big problem. 
This is the big problem. And then, and then thirdly, in chapters 3 through 4, Paul reveals the solution to that big problem. And then Paul explains the solution in 5 through 8. He, he, he says, this is what this solution means. And then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul answers his solution's biggest problem. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, And then Paul provides implications of the solutions in the church's everyday life. That's Romans 12 through 15. And then he explains his aim in specifically writing to the Roman church and why he is writing to them all of this. And then, of course, he signs off. There you go. See? Easy. Not, but that's helpful. It's helpful to get it all in my mind. Really, Paul is addressing a big a big problem that he wants to address. But let's, let's just break down a little bit more introductory information here on the letter to the Romans. Once again, this is, this is reasons why you want to know the message of Romans. Romans is a mountaintop in Paul. Um, just a key word, if you were to summarize all of Romans in one word, the word would be righteousness. Matter of fact, just for giggles and laughs, I began to underline all of the uses of righteousness in my Bible, in orange. That's why I'm still in ESV right now, by the way. Um, in orange. And I just kept highlighting. So let's go through them all. Righteousness. No, let's not do that. Um, they're everywhere. Righteousness is everywhere. It's the same word that also sometimes is translated uh, different, uh, the same root, I should say, that's translated justify in other places. So righteousness, justify, that's everywhere in the letter to the Romans. Paul is constantly talking about Righteousness, Righteousness, of course, is uh, referring to meeting the highest standard. It is God's standard. It is who God is. It's God's righteousness. It's something that belongs to God. That is what righteousness is. It is acting according to the highest standard. And this righteousness is God's alone in its highest form. And then, of course, Paul has a, a thesis statement. Once again, if any of you have ever written a paper, you know what a thesis statement is. This is what I am going to prove. You're not trying to prove it all in that thesis statement, but in a short sentence, you're trying to say, here is what I am setting out to prove. And Paul, of course, makes his thesis statement. This is one of, it's, it's, it's hard for me to say this is one of the more significant verses in Romans because there's so many significant verses. But um, chapter 1, 16 through 17 is essentially Paul's thesis statement. He says this, I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now this is very interesting. Notice, notice Paul attaches this to his greeting to the Roman church right after he says, hey, I'm really excited to see you, hoping to come to you soon, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And then verse 16, he says, for. What does that mean? It says, this is the reason why I'm excited to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome. And notice, this is the reason why I'm excited and eager to preach the gospel to you Christians who are in Rome. Why? Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God. Think about this. Rome was a place full of religious ideas. Rome was a place where all the roads in the empire went. And all of the religions in the empire went. And actually, Romans were very used to having lots of religions, lots of gods, lots of idols in their life. Now, what they didn't have any time for was any religion that said, hey, we're the only religion. That was where they got a little snobby, a little bit too sophisticated. That's, that's a little bit, little bit uh, old-fashioned, don't you think? We've, we've got tons of religions to deal with all of our problems. You only have one? That's, that's, that's foolishness. Right? And this is why Paul says this exactly. I am unashamed, even in Rome, even in the capital 
of the world. I am unashamed of the gospel. Why is he unashamed? Because it is the power of God. It is the power of God everywhere. It is the power of God in every problem, every situation. It is the power of God. Think about that, what that means. It's God's ability in our weakness and our inability. It is is to everyone. There is not someone out there that doesn't need this solution. Everyone needs God's power. God's power in the gospel is God's solution. It's, it's, it's not God's suggestion for how to live a better life. It is God's total power for how to be saved from sin. The gospel, then, is sufficient. Think about that word. The gospel is sufficient for your situation, for your problem, for your troubles. There's lots of issues in our world today, aren't there? There's lots of people out there saying, well, you know, I tried church once, but it's, it's not what I need right now, right? I've got bigger problems than the Bible can answer. No, Paul says, it is the power of God. And we, whenever we approach any situation, any sinner, any trouble, any discouragement, we need to remember, first and foremost, the gospel is the power of God in everyone, to everyone, every situation. Regardless of where you're at, regardless of how deep you think you are in trouble, the gospel is God's power. What does God's power bring? He says in verse 17, In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is God's righteousness revealed. It's fully made known. It's brought to light. Once again, righteousness, God's standard is revealed. Um, God provides life, salvation, Um, through this righteousness. This brings us to like the Old Testament. God's righteousness in the Old Testament is always being revealed. But there's something interesting that's always being revealed with God's righteousness. For example, Psalm uh, 98, uh, 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. He has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. When God's righteousness is revealed, his salvation to his people is revealed. Or how about Isaiah 46? Isaiah 46, 12 through 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. When God's righteousness is revealed, that's God's activity. That's God's saving activity for his people. There's a question. There's a question that many people ask when they come to verse 17, the righteousness of God. What is this? Is this God's righteousness in and of himself? Is this God's righteous character, the righteous God? Or is this the righteousness that God gives? Because we know in, in Romans 3 that Paul begins to talk about his righteousness as a gift from God. What, 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 was, what, is, what is he talking about here in verse 17? Well, it could be. It could be either or. So I'm tempted to say both. Let me just say it this way. Uh, God's righteousness here in verse 17, and you've got to understand this to kind of understand where Paul goes from here, but God's righteousness is, or sorry, it is God himself righteously acting 
and initiating activity to save unrighteous people, to make unrighteous people righteous in a way that maintains his righteousness. Or to say it this way, God righteously makes righteous the unrighteous. That's what's what's going on here. This is about God who righteously acts in such a way as to make us like him in righteousness. That is why Paul is so unashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel answers our biggest problem. The gospel answers our biggest problem. By the way, this has always been the way God saves. Notice there's a quotation there from Habakkuk 2 for the righteous shall live by faith. This whole idea of faith Receiving God's righteousness by faith is nothing new in the Bible. This is the way God has always saved, always saved, from from the Old Testament to now. Now, there is Paul's thesis. I I did I, I explained Paul's thesis a little bit, hinting at it, but that, that's what Paul's going to prove. And so this raises a number of questions. A good thesis should raise a number of questions in your mind, shouldn't it? Here's the questions that Paul needs to answer. I thought of three of them from this thesis alone. Number one, what does that mean? How can God's righteousness actually lead to a situation change between me and God? What what if I'm really, really bad? How can God be righteous and declare me to be righteous? Or how about this? Uh, How can God's righteousness actually produce real change in my life? How can God's righteousness actually transform every relationship in my life? It's great to say the power of God is revealed, but I don't understand how it transforms my relationship with God and it transforms my relationship with others. Or here's another question, problem that Paul needs to address And I'll I'll admit this is not a question you're probably asking, but I'm going to ask it anyway just to inform you guys. This is a question um, that Paul is going to answer, so I'm going to suggest it's a question that this thesis suggests. Um, What does God's righteousness in Israel's failure mean? Okay, God is righteous, it's the power of God, but is there a lot of assurance to be found in the power of God when we can point to his his dealings with Old Testament Israel and say they failed. They didn't do it. Here, there, there in the Old Testament, you know, Psalm 98, Isaiah 46, the righteousness of God is revealed and Israel failed. Their faith was insufficient. And if they failed, if they rejected God, if they rejected his Messiah, who am I? Why should I have any hope, right? This is actually the problem with Paul's big solution, right? But what about What about Israel? What about them? Did God fail with them? Did God's righteousness fail? But all to say, that's just the questions that we need to answer. Um, All to say, if you know the message of Romans, you can answer these questions and much, much more. Why? Because you have ascended Paul's theological mountain top. That was a lot to cover. That was four pages. That's why I knew that we'd never get through the other three points. So uh, we'll, we'll try to do this. Uh, what about number two? If you know the message of Romans, you can, secondly, if you know the message of Romans, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of the game here. Uh, I'm jumping a little bit to the end of Romans. After, after Paul kind of explains his, his 
his, his gospel message. He says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, right, Therefore, beloved, by the mercies of God, to uh, present your bodies as sacrifices, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Understanding the message of the gospel will transform you, transform your life by the renewing of your mind. The, the gospel does not transform you in some sort of a mystical, magical, mysterious way, always. It's not like God comes up to you and says, twang, you are now changed, transformed forever, and you don't know how it happened. No, the gospel transforms you most as your mind is renewed and transformed through understanding it. So understanding the gospel message already begins to renew and transform your life. That's what Paul exhorts them to do in chapter 12. And that's what Paul kind of demonstrates. And, and we see this even at the beginning and all throughout Romans. If you read through Romans, you see it transforms. It transforms through the renewal of the mind. Uh, it transforms through your understanding of the good news and how God's actions have transformed your situation. It, it transforms you through your understanding of all of the resources and power and strength that God has given you in order to navigate all of your life and all of your problems. And it's all found in the gospel. But you have to understand it. That's where transformation comes from. All of life is transformed through obedience to the gospel. That's, that's what Paul basically says, right? Uh, your life is transformed because you have obeyed the gospel. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1, we read this already, but let me point it out again. Romans 1, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Notice, faith produces obedience. Faith produces transformation. That's what faith does. The gospel will reshape your life in obedience to God. Paul says this again and again and again. Matter of fact, um, NIV translates verse 5, the obedience that comes from faith. That's kind of possibly what's going on there, right? Uh, the gospel will reshape your life to look more and more like obedience. The gospel will uh, will re, uh, transform your life in various ways. Uh, your, your relationships will be transformed. And let's just break this down really quick. Your relationship with yourself will be transformed through the gospel. And, and Paul gives us an example of this in and of himself. Look at, Paul's, look at Paul's introduction to himself. He says in verse 1 and verse 2, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Then he goes on and on and on about Jesus. I want to point something out. Notice, first off, Paul sees himself, number one, as a slave of Christ Jesus, but also, look at this, he is set apart for the gospel of Christ. That word, set apart, is, is a very interesting mean, uh, word. It means to be completely separated. It means to be cut off to have all of your former attachments and interests that used to govern your life be removed. And now, and now because you are set apart, you are not only set apart from your former self, but you're set apart to seek Christ and his cause. This is what Paul says, actually, in Galatians. Galatians 2.20, you know that verse, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer 
I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm set apart to seek Christ and his interests. This is also what, what Paul says in Philippians 1, Philippians 1.21, right? To, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Something massive has changed in Paul's life because the gospel has come. He is set apart. His former attachments are removed, and now he is solely, fully attached to Christ and seeking his interests. Your, gospel is res- your, your life is reshaped by obedience to the gospel. And, and one, more, one more illustration. This is amazing. I got this from John Murray, uh, an old commentary. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a commentary that is. Uh, John Murray points out, notice, this is just an observation he makes. Notice, well, Paul is introducing himself. How little Paul talks about himself and how quickly Paul talks about Christ. Right? As soon as Paul begins to introduce himself, he instantly begins to talk about Christ. Why? Because his life is wrapped up in what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. Paul's identity is wrapped up in Christ. Paul's whole joy is wrapped up in Christ. How about that? How about that, right? You, you, because you see yourself as attached to Christ, cannot think of yourself for very long before you begin to start thinking about Jesus. You cannot introduce yourself without introducing Jesus at the same time. That's the kind of guy Paul was. He was set apart for the gospel. He couldn't talk long about himself before eventually he began to talk about Jesus. You know people like that. You're kind of actually secretly afraid of them. They are amazing people, set apart by Jesus himself. The the gospel will transform your relationship with yourself. The gospel will also transform your relationships with everyone in your life. And this is, I know, this is getting ahead of Romans a little bit, but if you go into Romans 12, and we'll do this next week or five months from now, uh, if you go to Romans 12, you notice uh, the gospel transforms your relationships with other believers in Romans 12. The gospel transforms your relationships with those people who are your enemies in Romans 12, 19. The gospel transforms your relationships with governing authorities who are seeking taxes from you. The gospel transforms your relationships with other believers with whom you have disagreements in Romans 14 and 15. And these are, these are heavy things, right? And it transforms you because your whole life is shaped by Christ and knowing Christ and loving Christ. Matter of fact, uh, 12 verse 8 or 13 verse 8, it says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does not wrong his neighbor or its neighbor in Romans 13.10. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. In Christ Jesus, your life is reshaped by love. And then all of your relationships are therefore shaped and transformed. matter of fact, one more thing here. Romans uh, 15, Romans 15, 30. This is kind of Paul finally getting to the point of what he is writing Romans for. Uh, Romans 15, 20, 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Notice this, this love comes through and from the Spirit alive in us. What is, what is his appeal? What is he driving at? What does he want from them, from this letter that he's written? To strive together with me in your prayers to God. Right? He wants them to be together and striving for the purpose of spreading the gospel through Paul. 
Notice verse 31, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The gospel transforms your relationships and believe it or not, this is why Paul is writing to them. Let's try it. All right. Uh, Number three. (laughs) Number three. If you know the message of Romans, you can. If you know the message of Romans, you can. Compare your gospel with Paul's. You can compare your gospel with Paul's. You can sharpen your gospel through comparing it to Paul's. I, I suggest to you that this is your need. This is what you need. This is what we need today, right? We need our gospel message to not be shaped by the culture that we live in or the feelings that we have or the problems that we think we face. We need the gospel to be shaped and formed by what God says himself. We need to compare our message to Paul's. This is, this is number one, maybe number one reason why you want to go to Romans, right? I want to know the gospel better and I want to be able to have it sharpened. Just think what would happen if your gospel was shaped biblically in your evangelism. Just think what would happen if your gospel was shaped biblically in your counseling opportunities, when you're talking and having conversations with your friends. If your gospel was shaped biblically and is compared to Paul perfectly. What would happen in your life if your gospel was shaped biblically in your own conversations with yourself? What would happen? Well, I'll give you a hint. Assurance would soar if you compared your gospel to Paul's. And that's, that's what we want to read Romans for. We want to read Romans to compare our gospel with Paul's and renounce things that are not of that gospel. This brings us to the issue of sin, which I'm sure a lot of you were expecting me to get to a whole lot faster. Uh, Paul gets into sin real quick here in Romans. But let's quickly say, hey, Paul is going to define what sin is. And this is one of the the first ways we need to compare our gospel to Paul's with. Sin is not just our foolishness. Sin is not just failure. Sin is not just mistakes we've made. Sin is not just not living up to your fullest potential. Sin is something else. Sin is not even doing a lot of bad things that displease God. Sin is worse than that. And this is what Paul is going to explain when he explains here in Romans 1 through 2 through 3 that our biggest problem is our sin. Our biggest problem is our sin. Remember how I said uh, the righteousness of God in verse 17 is both referring to God's righteous character and his gift for us? Notice, notice Romans 1 18 begins to speak of God's righteousness as his righteous character being revealed against sin. What does he say? Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1 through 3 reveals your biggest problem and your biggest problem is God's righteousness itself. It is presently It is actively working in judgment against those who seek to ignore it and suppress it in their life. 
God's righteousness is actively judging those individuals. We are judged in our own sinful choices and desires. That is a judgment from God. A a present experience of God's judgment. Uh, You see it in verse 21, right? Uh, We we, we become futile in our thinking. Or uh, verse 24, we love lusts. Or in verse 26, we give ourselves to dishonorable passions. This is the judgment of God itself, presently on display. But we also see our problem with God's righteousness is also a future thing as well. And this gets us into Romans 2, right? God's righteousness will also meet those in the future with judgment who refuse to obey God's righteous standard, who, re- who do not fulfill the standard that God demands, his glory, his righteousness itself. And this is ironic because we see in, in chapter 1, verse 32, we see people who are ignoring God's standard judged by God's law. But we also see people who think they can judge others by God's law also being judged by that law. That's what we see, right? Chapter one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. There are Jews in the world that say, hey, we have the law of God. We know God's standard. Therefore, we can judge others. But they do not realize this law also judges us. Matter of fact, we're judged by our judgment because we cannot even hold up the standard that we proclaim to the world in God's law. God's righteousness is our biggest problems. Ultimately, actually, Paul will say in Romans 2 and 3 that the Jews aren't any better because they know the law. If anything, they're just under greater judgment because they know the law. And this is your problem too, right? You know more truth. All Paul's been doing here in Romans 1 through 2 and half of 3 is is really just kind of giving no escape route available to you. You know the story of Dunkirk, right? The, the Allies are backed up onto the beaches there, and the, and the Germans can sweep in and destroy them at any time. And, and because the, the Germans didn't press their advantage, the Allies actually escaped. But this is what's going on here in Romans 1 and 2. You are cornered, and your God can wipe you out at any minute. There is no way to be righteous before him. Not by the law, Not by hoping God will forget about you, miss you. No, God's righteousness is on display to everyone. God's righteousness makes no distinction, regardless of how much you know or how little you know, God's righteousness will judge you. It's a terrifying thing. The big problem of your sin is is not your acts, though. It's not just your acts against the holy God. I would say it's this. It is your active nature in rebellion to God, that often manifests itself in actions. That's what we see here. We see that all of us, regardless of whether we know the law or don't know the law, have this inner, natural enmity with God. This is what Paul says in Romans 5, actually 5.11 or 5.10. He says, we were enemies with God. The law, all the law does is just manifest that we are enemies by nature. And this nature within us is what produces all sorts of actions outside of us, doesn't it? It is a a natural instinct inside of us to reject any other authority but our own. Matter of fact, David says in in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In, in, In my mother's womb, I had rebellion in my heart. Not to its fullest extent, 
But if it goes unaddressed, it will result in greater and greater rebellion. We are naturally independent of God and seeking to be independent of God. And that's what we see in Romans. The, the, the law only shows us this. And this is what Paul says. You who have the law have an advantage because you have the law, but really you don't have any advantage at all. All the law shows you is that you are under sin. That's Romans 3.9. Or look over at Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, right? If you have the law of God, all it does, all its purpose is, is to stop your mouth. To show you that you do not rightly relate to God. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God's righteousness is our biggest problem. And the law just shows that. It doesn't matter how much you know or how little you know. The law reveals that God's righteousness is your biggest problem. And of course, that leads us to uh, Romans 3. Paul, Paul addresses our biggest problem, but then real quick, notice Paul also addresses our only solution. Our only solution. Now, verse three twenty one. the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, right? Uh, the, the, the righteousness of God is your biggest problem, but Paul also says the righteousness of God is also your only solution, your only salvation. Notice he says, but it's not found through good works of your own. Although the Old Testament law and the prophets, they point to this righteousness that can be found. Verse 21, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. God's righteousness is your only hope for a right relationship with him. It's, it's God's righteous standard. It's God's righteous standard that you need. This is not a new standard. Notice it's in the Old Testament. Uh, God's righteousness must be received by faith. We see that in verse 22. God's righteousness must be received through a justification act. We see that in verse 24, right? You must be declared righteous on the basis of someone else's righteousness. God's righteous judgment for your sin must also be completely satisfied through the substitutionary death of someone else. Look at verse 25. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, right? You must be declared righteous, and this declaration of God's righteousness in your life must come from someone else taking your place, someone else bearing your guilt and your judgment, and someone else giving you their righteousness before God. God's righteous judgment for your sin must come through Christ, Christ alone. And, and the Old Testament points to this. The Old Testament says, this is what we were looking for. Notice, this is what Paul's saying here. He's saying in, in verses you know, 25, 26, he is saying, this was how God could be righteous and declare people righteous. He has to righteously judge sin in Christ, or else he wouldn't be righteous anymore. And all of this, of course, depends on faith. All of this must rest on grace alone. You cannot stand on anything before God other than Christ alone. 
through faith is huge. Matter of fact, look what Paul says in, in Philippians 3, 9. I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. You must be found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, which is through the law or from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, right? You may be a really good person. You may be a perfect person, but that is not good enough. God says you need to be righteous as I am righteous to rightly relate to me. You can't have a righteousness of your own. You must have a righteousness from God. And matter of fact, this whole piece of faith is so significant. Paul emphasizes it in chapter 4. See that there? Um, You must be counted righteous as Abraham was counted righteous. You must be counted righteous as David was counted righteous. Which, by the way, verse 6 through 8, that is when David was in the worst sin of his life. You must have a faith. And what does a saving faith look like? Well, Paul will tell you in in 4.18, all the way through the end. This is what a saving faith looks like. A saving faith is a faith that shares aspects, characteristics with Abraham himself. It is a faith that is exclusively centered and focused on God, verse 17. It is a faith that hopes in God when there is no other hope. It is a faith that can be strong even when you are weak and have nothing to offer to God. And it is a faith simply defined in verse 21. Look at verse 21. This is faith defined. It is fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. If God promises righteousness to me by which I can stand before him in Christ, I cling to that promise. And it's fully convinced of that. All right, well, we are just beginning to ascend the theological mountain. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. Didn't even finish in, in time, nearly. We've, we've only just begun. Uh, there's plenty more implications, motivations for you. For example, we're going to a soar uh, salvation assurance next week. We're going to humble ourselves in worship. We're going to have loving service. We're going to have loving disagreements. We're going to have true gospel unity. But that's all for next time because obviously it's Romans. You cannot do it in one message. So um, let's pray together and then I have a quick question for you. All right. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for blessing us with this time together in your word. And we pray that we would be sharpened and shaped and changed and transformed even by the message that we hear here. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.